Good morning, friends. Good morning. Uh, I've, uh, I've brought today what the family likes to call the sexy smoker voice. So uh, bear with me and uh, pray my voice holds during service. I uh, apparently left my voice at my daughter's wrestling tournament this weekend. So, um, uh, so pardon me that I sound like a hardcore smoker this morning. Uh, Hey, I want, to, uh, I want to call attention this morning to Doug Lee. Doug Lee, everybody, we got a picture of him here in his chaplain garb, and this is very important because Doug... <clears throat> so Doug has just recently graduated from his chaplaincy program, and uh, some of you know this, some of you don't, but uh, Doug is bivocational. You would think he's full-time here because he's just everywhere all the time. Uh, but actually, he's half-time. And uh, the other half of the time, he is, uh, he is a chaplain. So he's been working on a chaplaincy program for the last two and a half years. Uh, very rigorous program, plus it's been during COVID. So uh, even, even more rigorous at that. So... Uh, program is done. They've actually already hired him part-time here at Torrance Memorial. Some of you have encountered him over there. And uh, this photo actually is from a forthcoming article that Torrance is putting out about Doug Lee. So anyway, stand for him. Uh, proud of you, brother, and just uh, excited for this. After service, we will have donuts in his honor. So stick around and eat a donut. I know, it just gets better. It's so good. Well, uh, let, me, uh, let me lead us in praying for Doug, could I? Uh, Father, we're so grateful uh, for our brother Doug. Uh, just the terrific man he is, the terrific pastor he is in this place. We're so thankful for him. And God, we're thankful too uh, that you have equipped him such that he can be a pastor in a church and also a chaplain in a hospital. And we pray that you would bless both sides of that ministry, uh, that you would just fill him with your Holy Spirit, that you would do your work through him. And we're so grateful that we are part of that work as well. Uh, so God bless him in every way. Pray that you would bless his wife, his daughters as well, that your hand would be upon them uh, and that they all might receive uh, the, the blessing from the good work that he does. Uh, so God, we give you thanks. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so hey, here's where we're going this morning, my friends. Um, uh, thank you, Keith, for bringing as much voice as you can from me here. I appreciate it. Uh, we're working through our values uh, over these, these few weeks in the beginning of the year. Last week, we talked about the value of being a biblical church. This week, we're talking about being a devotional church. And... Um, are any of you familiar with the commas save lives memes? Have you seen these? I find them delightful because I'm nerdy, and so this kind of humor appeals to me. But commas save lives. So take a sentence like this. Let's eat, Grandma. The comma there is very important. You remove the comma, and you're left with, let's eat, Grandma. Very different meaning. Commas save lives. Okay, how about this one? I like cooking, my pets, and my family. <laughs> Note how important the commas are. Read it again without the commas. I like cooking, my pets, and my family. 
not good. The first is someone you'd probably like to spend some time with. The second, you don't, especially if you're a pet or a family member. Uh, one more, just because they're fun. Uh, let's get some sticks and marshmallows to roast, kids. <laughs> Remove the comma, and you have all kinds of trouble. Let's get some sticks and marshmallows to roast, kids. So um, <clears throat> I bring this up only because we're going to interject a bit of grammar into this morning's message. So uh, all around prepositions, if you can, can take yourself back to grammar school and maybe remember what those are and why they matter. So a, a key element in having a robust devotional life and in living in a love relationship with Jesus is how we view ourselves in relation to God. And we're going to illustrate that this morning through some prepositions, through a little bit of grammar. So headline this morning, take this in, to be a devotional Christian, this is one of our values, to be a devotional Christian Focus on living with Jesus. Keyword there is with. Focus on living with Jesus. Our life in God is not primarily about doing things for God. It's the wrong preposition. It's not about living a life under God. It's not about living a life where we put ourselves over God. It is about living a life with God. It's a little tiny piece of grammar. It's small as a comma. It's a preposition. But it matters. And sort of like we said last week when we were talking about living as biblical Christians, uh, often we think about these things in terms of willpower. And I would suggest so often they are not. They have to do with other things. And one of the, the biggest parts of how we live a relationship with Jesus is the way that we view ourselves in relation to God. And God's desire is that we would focus on living with Jesus. So here's where we're going this morning. Uh, we are going to look at three faulty postures that we take. Three postures other than the with Jesus posture. And then we'll end with a couple of practices to help us uh, live more and more into that space of being with Christ. So again, uh, let me pray and we'll look at the text together. Father God, as we worship you here this morning, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes and ears and hearts that are receptive to your word. God, that you would grow us deeper into the likeness of Christ. We look to you for this. We trust you for this. We ask you by your spirit, through your word, to do this work in us. And God, may you be worshipped as we come to the scriptures this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes this. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, friends, note here, note the instructions that Paul gives and then the basis for these instructions as well. He says, this is how you are to relate to God. He says, set your hearts on things above, 
where Christ is. Right? So he says, reorder your affections, reorder your desires around those things that reflect Christ. Right? Put your heart where Jesus is. And then he says the same thing about your minds. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So reset the posture of your heart, but he says also reset the posture of your mind, what you think about. Fill your mind and fill your heart with things of God. He says this is, this is how you are to walk with God. But then note the why. Listen to the reason he gives. Verse 3, it says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life, friends, is now hidden with Christ in God. Paul says the reason that you should set your heart on things above, the reason that you should set your mind on things above, is that your life has been so intertwined with the life of Jesus that he can say that you, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and you, in a sense, are seated with him because your life and his are intertwined. And he says, this goes so far that he says, when Christ returns, then you also are going to. You also will be revealed. Who you truly are is going to be revealed as well. You know, we we often talk in the church uh, about Jesus being in us or Jesus being in our hearts, and this is is biblically appropriate language. Uh, It's accurate. But by a factor of about 20 to 1, the New Testament usually talks about it in the reverse, about us being in Christ. That our life is so intertwined with Christ. If you have put your trust in Jesus, if you are trusting him to save you from your sins, to bring you into eternal life, your life is so intertwined with Jesus Paul can speak of it this way, of this sort of overlap. Listen to how he puts it in another place. This is how Paul puts it to the Galatian church. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? This is another picture of withness, another picture of this union between us and Christ being so profound that Paul can say, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ, right? This is how, how closely his life and Christ's life have been bound up together. This is the with God life, what some of the ancients used to refer to as union with God. That there is something on a spiritual mystical level that happens with us when we enter into God's salvation where our life and the life of Christ just intertwine and flow into each other. Now, uh, hold that in your mind, this picture of withness and how this might apply to living a devotional life in God as we look at some of the ways that we, we commonly misshape this some of the postures that we default into uh, that, uh, that misrepresent what our relationship with God might be. See if you recognize yourself in any of these. You probably will. First is this. 
uh, it's living for God, right? As opposed to living with God, living for God. And this particular posture is high on serving, but it can be low on relationship. Living for God, high on serving, low on relationship. Uh, This is a place it's easy for us to fall into, especially as those who are sort of devout in their faith, where we are working for God, but not necessarily knowing him all that well. So here's a story. Uh, All all stories today uh, will be true. They are anyway, but... um, but are kind of representative of a number of conversations that I've had uh, with folks in, uh, in each of these categories. But uh, got a call from a friend one day who loved serving God. And God had used them in this church for uh, a long time in a lot of really beautiful, beautiful ways. And uh, he found serving God exhilarating, right? As many as, many as you do, as, as I do. I mean, there's something really exciting. There's something really satisfying about seeing God use you. Uh, but for this particular brother, uh, his, his serving God was never really undergirded by a strong relationship with God through prayer or through the scriptures. It was primarily about serving. And he got to a place where he burned out. It was like, I can't do this any longer. And, uh, and was really struggling in his relationship with God. Uh, does anybody relate to that? It's an easy place for us to get to, where we work for God, but we neglect a relationship with God, and it's not sustainable. It's not something we can sustain over time. Or there's other reasons for this, too. Um, I've, I've sat with folks, and I've been this person, too, <clears throat> who, um, who serves God like crazy uh, because they believe they need to in order to keep God happy. If God is going to approve of them, then they need to serve and serve hard. Or others who serve like crazy because they feel like that balances out the sin in my life, right? I, I can't stop sinning, but at least if I'm serving like crazy, well, then I'll be pleasing to God, right? And friends, all of these are a losing battle. Right? We're pleasing to God because Jesus has already paid for those sins. When we try to pay for sins that are already paid for, we just drive ourselves nuts. And we can't sustain ourselves in this type of posture towards God. Or, or maybe this is you. <clears throat> this one has definitely been me. Uh, maybe you start serving God with massive joy in who he is. But over time, it just becomes about the work and doing the things, right? This is, a, this is a common job hazard for those in vocational ministry, right? Uh, you might come to days where you're like, I just don't feel like doing for God. Well, it doesn't matter. It's your job. So you keep doing it. This is a job hazard. Is, is this making sense? Does anybody feel this? Okay, great. Um, are you understanding the words that come out of my mouth? Because I'm drinking lots of tea in an effort to keep them understandable. Now, Listen, don't, don't mishear me. We are to serve God, and you're going to find some of your most satisfying moments in life come as you are serving God. Some of your most gratifying relationships will come out of serving God with others. This is a good, it's a positive. 
But if it's not undergirded by a strong with God relationship, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Listen to uh, this example of Jesus, Mark 3. I love this. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. And it names here the 12 apostles. But did you catch this distinction? I love this. This is, it's so weird, but this is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It says, Jesus called them to be with him. And then he sent them. He called to himself those that he wanted. I mean, that part of itself is beautiful, isn't it? They're there because he wanted to be with them. He calls them to be with him and then to be sent out to serve. Friends, listen. You are made to serve God. You are not made to be a slave. God designed you primarily so that he would have somebody to serve him. That's not the need. He created you because he wants to be with you. Part of that being with you will be in the context of serving. But it's primarily about being with, not working for. That's the first. The second faulty posture that we fall into is this. Uh, It's living under God. We've got living with God is what we're shooting for. Living for God is one way we distort this. Living under God is another. Now, this posture is high on technique, but low on relationship. High on technique, but low on relationship. Living under God. So, another story. A friend calls. They're so frustrated. We've been praying that they would get this particular job. They didn't get the job, and they're crushed. And really, really wanted this. It was really important to them. And a person says to me, listen, I just don't understand. You know, I know I'm not perfect, but I pretty much live right. I go to church all the time. I tithe. I'm in a small group. You know, I don't have any, like, huge, big, glaring sins. Why isn't my relationship with God working? Why isn't my relationship with God working? Now listen, when we are living under God, uh, we tend to fall into a space where a relationship with God that works means we put in our part and God reciprocates in kind. Right? So if, if living for God sees God as primarily interested in what we can do for him, Living under God sees a relationship where we're primarily interested in what God can do for us. He is above. He has all the power. We are below. We are at his mercy. And our life with God defaults into this place where we're trying to figure out, how do I get God to do for me what I want him to do? Living under God. Now, follow me on this. As you live into this, it largely becomes about technique. What are the things I have to do? What are the boxes I have to check? If I go to church X number of times per
per month. Is that enough that God is going to give me the things that I want? If I avoid these sins and I do these righteous things, then is God going to do what I want? This is living under God. He has the power, and we're trying to figure out how can I get him to pour a little of that power out onto me. Maybe this analogy would be helpful. Maybe you have worked or you've gone to school in a place where there is a notoriously fickle vending machine. (laughs) Have you lived under the tyranny of such a vending machine? It's terrible. You put in the money, you push the buttons, and maybe you get the thing that you ordered, or maybe you're going for those Doritos, but by some inexplicable magic that happens within the machine, it gives you the apple instead. (laughs) The horror. Or it gives you nothing at all, right? I've, I've had these. You know, we had one of these in our college dorm. It was notorious, and maybe you've had one of these too. <clears throat> but imagine this scenario. You are living life in the presence of this very fickle vending machine. And stories start to emerge around this community, around the vending machine, of how you can get it to function properly, right? And one person says, okay, this is the key. Put in your money, push the buttons, but then immediately you need to get down low, reach under that slot, you know, put your hand up in there, and you've got to, you've got to mess with the stuff in there to, to get it to do the thing. Now, when I was in elementary school, uh, we would try to do this with the Coke machine to get a free Coke, but a rumor started that there was actually a blade in there, and the blade would come around and it might cut off your finger <laughs> if you were trying to do this. I, of course, was terrified by this. I had no extra fingers to lose, so I never tried it. (laughs) But this is one of the the rumors going around the vending machine community. And then somebody else says, no, 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 you don't put your hand up there. If you want the vending machine to give you your thing, put in the money, punch in the code, and then you need to shake that thing like crazy. Put your back into it. Shake that thing until it drops the thing that you want. And somebody else hears this, and they're like, no, 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 no. There's a way to do this. It's a surefire. It works every time. What you need to do, put in the money, push the buttons, and then bang it on the side three times. Three bangs and one kick. And it will drop you those famous Amos cookies instead of the apple that you don't want to get. Right? Now, it's not that difficult for us to slip into a posture with God where we treat him like a fickle vending machine. We say, well, if I pray in this way, right, if I get the formula right on my prayer, then God will give me what I want. Or if I just, you know, I need to just claim it. That's the way to do it. Or I need to pray these particular verses or I need to make sure that I never fail to say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer or whatever it is, right? And that's just the prayer department. We have this in terms of our church attendance. We have this in terms of what we do and don't do. But our relationship with God, instead of being a with Jesus kind of relationship, it starts to be about technique. How can I get God to do what I want him to do? to do. Now, hear the words of Jesus on this. In contrast, he says this in Matthew 6. He says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, 
for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. And he dives into some words that may be well known to you, the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and etc., etc., and on it goes. But this is interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus is talking to some of his fellow countrymen, right? They're worshiping the same God, but he says, the way that you do it, he says, you're approaching it the way that those who don't know God approach it. You're coming with your formulations, you're coming and you're babbling like the pagans do, thinking, if I get the words right, then God will do what I want. But by contrast, this is the key line, Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. And this says so much, right? Because if that's the case, then why do we ask at all? What's the point of asking God if God already knows what we need before we ask that thing? Because that's, that's just it. It's not about a formula with a God who needs to be informed and then needs to be persuaded or manipulated into doing the thing we want him to do. It's about relationship with a God who loves us. A God who says, call me Father. A God who wants to live life with us and created us for that. It's not about cracking a code. It's about being with. Now, for me and, and you know, my life as a dad, um, and do you know how much I love it when my girls ask me for something? I, I do. I love it. And I know sometimes they feel like they're bugging me or something, but they're not. I love it when they ask me for something. And if, if I am able to give them what they ask, and most of the time, I mean, when it comes down to it, frankly, most of the time my answer is yes. If it is in my power to give it, I usually do because I am so delighted that I can. Uh, now, of course, there's times when I'll say to them, Okay, that, that's a good ask, but uh, not now. Too young. Not going to happen just yet. And then there's other times, too, where they ask me for something, and I just say, you know what, baby, I love you, and that's a terrible idea, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but all that, all that is part of my fatherly love with them, right? All that is part of that with relationship that I share with my daughters, now, they might poke and pride and manipulate and try to coerce and do this and that to try to get a certain answer out of me. And, um, and sometimes it works. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but for the most part, no, it's, it's, it's like, no, no. I love you enough that I'm going to say yes if it's a good yes. And I'm going to say no if it's a good no. And I'm going to say not yet if you're just too darn young. Right? And that's what the with-them relationship looks like. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be his name, wants that kind of relationship with you and I. He's not looking for you to be living under him. He wants you to live with him. That's, that's the second, friends. That's the second distorted posture. Let me give you one more. And that is living over God. 
Right? So we've got living for God, living under God, and living over God. This posture is high on scrutiny, but also low on relationship. All right, two stories for this one, and they're two parallel stories. So a friend calls, says, hey, I can't be part of this church any longer. I'm going to move on. Uh, we, as a church, we talk too much about racial justice and not enough about abortion. And by the way, I think you've sold out to the radical left. And so I say, well, we make an effort to talk about both those, racial justice and about abortion, because the scriptures teach us that both of those are important to the heart of God. But let me ask you this. What do you hear the scriptures saying about racial justice? And what have you heard that runs contrary to what the scriptures say? about racial justice. Put a pin in that story. We'll come back to it. Second story. A friend invites me out for coffee and says, hey, um, I appreciate the ways in our church that we talk about and that we minister to LGBT Christians, but I can't be part of this church any longer because you won't say that God blesses same-sex marriage. And I say, Well, what do you hear the scriptures saying about same-sex sexual relationships? And uh, in both these stories, to the credit of both people involved, they engaged, we talked through the scriptures, and they went and they did a bunch of study on their own. Neither ended up leaving the church, which was great. Others have in these same stories, um, which happens. Um, But in these, they didn't. Uh, but we were able to talk through to a point of saying, hey, when it comes down to it, the struggle that you're having, and it's an honest, earnest struggle, the struggle that you're having is not with me, and it's actually not with our church. The struggle you're having is with God. You want the Bible to say something that the Bible doesn't say, and you're going to have to make a choice of whether you're, you're, going to live a life with God where he gets to be God or if you're going to insist that you get to be God. This is a picture of living over God. (coughs) Where we come to God in such a way uh, that we are scrutinizing him to see if he meets our standards. Where we come with our own moral code and we decide whether God is good enough to meet that moral code. Where we come to God eyeing him and wondering if he is going to be the God that we want him to be, and if not, what we're going to do with that. C.S. Lewis, in a famous essay titled God in the Dock, he writes about this phenomenon as a primarily a modern thing. He says that the ancient man approached God as the accused approaches his judge with a bit of fear, and with a lot of humility. He says, by contrast, the modern man has reversed it. We are now the judge, and we come to God expecting him to answer to us. That is the living over God posture. And, and, and this, is, this is difficult, friends. Um, you know, and it's exacerbated, I think, in our day and age. 
you know, when, when we're in this place, and I think it's very easy for all of us to slip into this, but we're in this place of living over God. When we meet God in Scripture, instead of coming to be with him and to be instructed by him, we come asking, does this fit with what I want to believe? And if not, can I make it fit? And with the help of Google, right? Thank you, Google, for making confirmation bias easier than it ever was in the past. With the help of Google, we can most certainly find someone to come along and say, yeah, 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 you're good, you're right. But before we ever get to that, it's a problem of posture. Living over God as opposed to living with God. Uh, it's, this posture, of course, isn't new, but it has been more pronounced the last few years as our society gets more and more polarized and we want our religion to support our other strongly held beliefs. And there's, there's a, a trend that pollsters are beginning to track which is very unfortunate, very sad, but there's a sifting going on in the churches in our country where more and more we're sifting ourselves, we're self-selecting into MAGA churches and woke churches. And both those are a reflection of a living over God posture. I'm going to find a brand of religion that tells me what I want it to tell me. Life over God. Uh, One of my... um, Ah, I'll quote her in a minute. Um, so listen to what Jesus says here. This is Luke eleven forty two, And this is an example of this that he's calling out. It says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, that's another herb, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So, know what Jesus is saying here? He's pronouncing woe on the Pharisees because they embraced some aspects of God's word, but they rejected others. In other words, they grabbed the parts that they liked, and to the others, they said, no thanks. So, for them, for the Pharisees, it was tithing, right? And what is it about the Pharisees that makes tithing the thing that they're like, yes, I want to keep that, I don't know. But it was... Um, <clears throat> probably because it's, it's easily controlled, actually. But, uh, but for them, they were meticulous about the way that they tithed to the extent of going out into their herb gardens and going to the smallest of plants and picking off one out of every ten leaves off of the herb and making sure that they brought that to the temple. Right? So they had that down. And Jesus says, that's all fine and good, but you've neglected these other things, justice and loving God. He says, you should have done both. You should have held on to the one and also done the other. Which is important for us to hear because I've, I've heard folks read this text and say, well, there it is. What really matters is justice. I'm like, no, no, no. You're not hearing what Jesus is saying. That's just picking and choosing the other thing. Jesus is saying both of these things are in God's word. So do both of these things. The life over God posture says, I'm going to take the parts that I want. I'm going to throw out the rest. We're not called to that, friends. We're called to living with God instead. Uh, One of my favorite writers is a pastor named Tish Harrison Warren. And she writes this. She writes, we live in a culture where it's easy to assume we know better than God. 
We are taught in subtle ways that our feelings and experiences are the center of reality. This is cultivated in us in big and small ways every day. And then she gives this great example. She says, an advertisement for jeans blares from my radio, proclaiming, I speak my truth in my Calvins. Uh, Those are uh, the pants, not the theologian. This constant messaging reduces us to mere agents of our own self-expression and curated identities. What we think, what we feel, what we want, and what we buy. We begin to approach God only to judge him and his actions according to our own preferences and little t truth. We wait for God to convince us that he's a useful accessory in our own project of self-creation. In this way, so very subtly, we approach God not in honest lament, but as unhappy customers. God isn't giving us what we want. He isn't taking away the pain of this world, and frankly, he's so terribly slow. We are not pleased with the job God is doing, and the customer is always right. Friends, God is not looking for a relationship where we are over him, and he conforms to our standards He's not looking for a relationship where he's over us and we're trying to manipulate him into giving us what we want. He's not looking for a relationship where we're reduced to working for him and nothing more. He is looking to live life with us. Now, here's a little bit of homework as we go into this week. So... This isn't an overnight thing. We learn to live with God by repeatedly doing it over and over and slowly growing into it over time as the Holy Spirit helps us. So here's a primer. Here's a place to start. Homework. Start your day with Jesus. Take him to work. Worship him with others. Start your day with Jesus. Take him to work. Worship him with others. So starting your day, right? And uh, man, maybe you are that person and you are able to get up and have an hour of time with God in prayer and the scriptures before work. And if that's the case, man, do it. Maybe you've got 15 minutes to give. Maybe you've got five. Whatever it is, wherever you are at, start your day with Jesus. Not doom scrolling through Instagram, not checking the headlines. Start your day with Jesus. Second, take him to work or school if you're a student or take him into your parenting or take him into your errands or into your retiring or into your volunteering. Whatever it is you do during your day, take him with you. Right? The ancients called this practicing the presence of God. Uh, but throughout the day, talk to him about what you and he are doing together. Talk about the work that you're doing. Make comments. Ask questions. Ask for what you need. But spend that day doing the things that you do consciously in the presence of Jesus. And worship. Uh, Friends, the truth is, none of us are able to sustain robust faith on our own. It has to be done in fellowship. So worship him with others. Uh, This is part of that. Singing together and receiving word and sacrament together. It's essential 
We need this. Being in a small group is part of this. Being in a place where you're known and you can know others. Uh, being in a relationship with others with, where you can be honest, you can talk about your failings and talk about your triumphs, where you can say, I need prayer for this. Worship God with others. We cannot do it alone. The devotional life is a with Jesus life. We build this as we start with him. We take him to work. We take him into our day. And we reinforce it as we worship with others. Let's pray together.